wasn't it between city limits? Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear... Oh, three seconds and we're only... <laughs> 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 yeah, it's sort of like that around here in City Limits, isn't it, getting going? It's sort of every second counts. Um, and we're, it's, um, it is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. It's a day in which we don't have any specific subject. We are going to be talking to um, the, AE, the um, Australian Conservation Foundation anti-Iranian person, Dave Sweeney, whom we finally catched caught at about uh, seven thirty this morning, so there was a bit of panic going on. <laughs> yeah, but he did, he did. We did agree on it a couple of weeks ago, but he's he's away. He's actually in the Flinders Ranges, mm. um, which is interesting because he's there to um, he's there fighting a proposal to dump waste in the Flinders Ranges, and uh, wow. it's the very subject right we want to talk to him about. So uh, brilliant. <laughs> so, he's, from, so he's on the spot. He's on the, the spot. Yeah. Yep. So we're talking to Dave in about 20 minutes or so. He pointed out that he's half an hour behind us or something, but uh, okay. he's, not, he's not really, Yeah, <laughs> if, if you follow what I mean. Yeah. Okay, yeah. are we too? Well, we haven't met who we are, are we? Um, there's Eugenia Subzinko over there. Um, and um, there's Meg Kimber. Morning. Who's going to start a new midnight to uh, dawn ship very shortly on the station. <laughs> it's not exactly <laughs> accurate, <laughs> but there will be a show on midnight and it just goes for one hour so you don't have to <laughs> listen to She's me going to do the midnight hours. to one <laughs> shift on this yep. station. Yep. And, it's not on uh, Tuesday nights, I hope. I'm Kevin I'm Healy. No. It's Wednesday night. She's got, <laughs> she comes, in at, comes, comes up here, here at 10 and hangs around on midnight. <laughs> yeah, it's live. So <laughs> people can't see the inverted commas that I'm making with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and the show, well, let's talk about it. I mean, it's a new program. You're you and someone else I know. Yeah, Joe different. Rally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's an hour long. I'll pour show. some tea while you're chatting yeah. about that. Anyone else who doesn't want tea? Anyone? Mm, I'd love Everyone? some tea. Okay, yeah. all right, we're all in. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an hour long radio chat show where we talk to different people about <laughs> life. And yeah, the big topic. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it really is a big topic. We had someone come on, and um, they were like, "Oh, these are big questions." We're like, "Yeah, that's the point." <laughs> so you're kicking off in a very small way to kick it off. You're going to just discuss the whole meaning of life, are you? That's exactly. It. Yeah, right. we're just starting with something simple that's easily sort of solved, basically. Radio. Yeah. So and what kind of people do you talk to? Um, writers, mm, comedians. Great creative folk mm. um people who've done interesting things like take like get rid of their mobile phones altogether mm. and um you know have sort of done studies or investigated things about you know what makes a meaningful life mm, sounds so, fascinating yeah mm. well you guys will have to listen you'll have to stay up <laughs> late and <laughs> well that's the um that's the time of day when one asks oneself these that's big exactly questions, it. Right? yeah that's the point yeah you could you could have uninteresting people who've never had a mobile phone in the first place <laughs> <laughs> are you offering to go on the show because <laughs> no, i would happily it, interrogate it, you it about your it, life it wasn't, it wasn't an offer it was a throwaway line <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll see. You might I'm sure you've got some insights, Kevin. Hear Kevin on the show one day. <laughs> <laughs> but for night owls, that's it, midnight. And when's it start? Next week, I think, isn't this it? This week. Oh, it's yeah. tonight. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Oh, right, oh, yeah. we're all okay. Yeah. We'll wait. have to stay up. Yeah. <laughs> and then next have a listening week, party. Next week, we'll give our opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> 
No, it'll be and it'll be absolutely true, of course. So. <laughs> you can um, you can be added to Kevin's weekly news digest. Mm. <laughs> okay, let's kick off. Wedding. Let's kick off. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, um, yeah. let's go. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but the, the there's a fifteen or twenty page or something. It has to be around yeah, divided by four, doesn't it? Um, paid this morning. There's a whole souvenir, but Monday morning they also had it. They had a beautiful coverage. I thought I must say I was deeply impressed by it. Um, Monday morning uh, they had a wraparound, and I thought, well, at least the wraparound you can just take out and you throw it away. All's well. Royal wedding souvenir, but the wording was really beautiful and sincere. Drama, history, emotion, glamour, dot, 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 and love. <laughs> the marriage of Prince Harry and Hollywood star Meghan Markle proved fairy tales do come true. When I heard he was going to marry a woman called Meghan, I, I actually thought you'd come up in the world. Yeah. Or <laughs> well, it's always been my ambition. <laughs> one more, one more. I guess he heard the show and was just like, yeah, I'm going to marry that girl. Although one might suggest it's down in the world, but let's not go there. Um, I am excited uh, that people might start pronouncing my name properly, which is yeah. Meghan. Yes. But a lot of people in Australia say Megan. That's mm. what they hear usually more often. So that's basically my big takeaway but from Megan the royal wedding. <laughs> Megan hasn't got an H. Have you got an H in yours? I don't, but it's ah, pronounced still the Megan, same you? Okay, yeah. right here. <laughs> Harry and Glorious is the wonderful front page headline. Oh, that's, that's great. It's she, a doesn't even, pun, she doesn't even wonderful figure pun. in the title, does she? No, happy, she's well, that's, an appendage. See, it's, it's, but it's the... It's the God save the Queen, happy and glorious, you see. That's the, oh, that's see. the pun. It's a pun. Didn't even get that. Um, and <laughs> neither did I. I spent two days thinking about it and I finally got it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how much I cared about it. Uh, <laughs> And look, so in love is a headline here, um, and what he said to her, it's quite beautiful. The next one is Festival of Joy, and I won't read the cloying, <laughs> dreadful, sickening, saccharine words. Um, Harry, oh, well, she gets a mention, Megan, there. look it. at that, that's it. But this yeah. morning, there's a, I haven't seen it, but I was advertised a colour lift out of a tribute to them. The future looks bright. With an excited wave to her Uncle Harry and new Auntie Meghan, three-year-old Princess Charlotte won the hearts of millions across the globe. <coughs> <laughs> Having not watched the wedding, we missed that. She didn't win our hearts. I, I presume, you, I'm going to take for granted you didn't watch it. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're <here> again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Did you want to watch it? Here? I, uh, I tuned Come in. On, be my, honest, be honest. At 11pm, I, I, my curiosity was piqued <laughs> and um, I kind of overrid my innate scepticism and turned it on. And then... <laughs> Something stirred in, in, in the depths of my heart and I got excited by these swords and flowers and princes and princesses. But I'm Next sorry thing. to say I actually missed the ceremony. Uh, oh, what a I, I watched a little bit on YouTube and I managed oh. to see the best part, which was the preacher from America uh, yes. and everyone's reactions to him yes, yes. Um, because mm. they, were, they were smirking. Were they? And I thought that was a little bit unkind because he was very passionate. Yeah. And, mm. uh, and then the choir, which looked like a choir from the future. <laughs> their, their outfits were amazing and their hair choir? was amazing. Mm. Yeah. Future and they gospel. sounded beautiful, future gospel. Wow. I was like, yep, that's good. So they're the bits I saw and then I sort of tuned out. Yeah, well, I, I was on I a like sort it. of connection to this show because uh, it was four years Saturday since um, Doug Jordan, who used to co-present this for a number oh. of years, died. And so a few of his friends, we had a curry dinner and um, we oh. we all brought some curry. Each of us bought some mm. and, and some very fine wine and we just forgot to watch the wedding. Oh. Yes, yes. I'm sure just, Doug would have loved that. Yes, yeah, just, <laughs> just a pity. <laughs> but let's move on. Um, the <clears throat> This is one I find interesting. It's one I was going to raise with Dave, but I, we won't get time for that, so I'll, I'll raise it here. Um, the Energy Security Board, this is a board set up to um, 
draw up the guidelines and how the national energy guarantee will work that the government's going on, which, of course, he'd brought in because Finkel recommended a clean energy target. That was the only one of his 50 recommendations mm. they didn't adopt. Mm. And... Um, the energy, but this I find fascinating. This body that's set up to, to draw it up um, has taken the extraordinary measure of asking key interest groups to second staff to work full time with their organisation to help write the detail of the policy <coughs> to be voted on. <coughs> to be voted on by state and territory governments this year. Some of the organisations asked to send staff to the ESB, so they they second them. Mm. The government will help pay their their salaries for the private companies and all travel costs. And they've, in, they've invited the Business Council of Australia, the Australia Industry Group, Australia Energy Council, the Clean Energy Council at least gets it run, but that's the government body and it doesn't look too clean, uh, as well as big energy companies including Origin Energy, all of which have a stake in the energy outcome. So they've asked all these people mm. to draw up the guidelines for something and do you think they'll draw up anything that might help them personally? <laughs> Mrs. Victor? I'm sure it'll uh, be completely neutral. Completely neutral. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And that's definitely the pattern that we've seen in the past in this show, right? <laughs> yes. That's right. Let that's people right. police themselves yeah. and they'll do a great job. That's right. <laughs> mm. So there you are, and um, that's, that should end up with a really good policy, I would have thought. Uh, <laughs> was the reporting that's in the Finn review, was the reporting balanced on that? Well, uh, it was balanced in the sense that toward the end... Um, one industry representative described it as a clear conflict having companies or organisations who will be affected by the NEG to be mm. drafting its guidelines, but another welcomed the move, saying it would be good to get different perspectives of the NEG. Well, they'll give different perspectives, <laughs> all right. Um, um, and, okay. Anyway, that's it. And, yeah, we, right. we want to get the right resign to everybody, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's mm. all very good, yeah. Okay. Uh, there's also been, we mentioned last week, that um, a former diplomat and um, ambassador to China had suggested that Bishop ought to be sacked. Remember, oh, you weren't here last week. We, we read it out no. last week okay. um, because the the fact that she's so broken down our relationships with China and they're so important, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Now, well, you could predict what's going to happen, of course. Suddenly she's all interested in China. <laughs> and th- and, and She's the there next, right now, isn't she? That's right. The next, mm. you know, she's, she's not really there. No, she's not there, but she's, <laughs> she's over somewhere near there. Oh. And, but, and you could... And, um, she anyway. She met the Chinese, um, her cohort from China, at a meeting she went to this week somewhere in the Indian Pacific, etc. And I heard on the news this morning there's stories about it about how they had a wonderful meeting, and China denies it was a wonderful meeting this morning, <laughs> which is a bit of a pity. But also that she she said she'd wangled an invitation, and I think it was odds on that soon because one of the criticisms was she hadn't been to China for so long, that within days she'd be wangling an invitation and begging for one. Oh. And um, she claimed she got one, but it's not, not too sure, but it's an ongoing thing and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But Malcolm says he won't sake her, and that's bloody mm. good, isn't it? <laughs> that's just terrific. Um, and poor Catherine Brenner. Catherine Brenner's the woman who was the um, chair, chairwoman at AMP. Um, oh, yes. Which should be called AMP on the customers because that's what they do. But anyway. What's AMP, she, it, um, Kevin? AMP. <laughs> Australia Mutual Providence, that's what it is. That's the company. This is the company that got sprung in the Royal Commission for... Uh-huh. Uh, very badly. Yeah, very gotcha. badly for, uh, for for doing work it didn't do and all sorts of things. Um, anyway, 
she's also on numerous other boards. And she's, there were stories about her I've read that shows she's an incredibly ambitious woman in terms of these directorships, etc., right. all of which pay liberally, of course. Mm. Um, and last week, Coca-Cola Amatil, which um, specialises in health of the community, um, Amatil originally was, uh, in fact, of course, a tobacco company, Benson and Hedges, etc., and they oh, was it? amalgamated with Coca-Cola. So they're really wow. working, they're really working on the health yeah, side well, of those it. Those two together, yeah, are that's a really right. good combo. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Got a sip of tea. I got a tea. Mm. Anyway, she's also on that board, and they had their annual meeting last week, and there were calls for her to resign, but she compromised, and she's guaranteed she'll step down next year. <laughs> When her, when her time was up anyway. I agree I should step down, <laughs> but right. I'll just do it later. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's all that money to think of. Oh, God. <laughs> so that's it for uh, poor old Catherine. Um, so there you are. Um, and this is this is sad news, and I think we've got a radiothon next month we're going to talk about at some yes. stage because um, we have to raise... Uh, 2400 I think, this okay. year, this program is in right. an hour. So we're yeah. going to get, get to any friend you see, no just problem. Let's tip, go. Yeah. tip them up. Whatever falls out of their pockets, take it. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down and we'll announce it on the day. Um, so that's that. Um, but um, Crown Resorts at Barangaroo in Sydney, that dreadful all the development that um, Lend Lease and, and Paul Keating was heavily involved at the start in setting it up, but it's right. a, it's on it's it's on Darling Harbour or near Darling Harbour. Uh, and I've met, we've mentioned before on the show that there was one piece of land set aside for public open space and the whole thing was designed to be a public transport enclave as opposed to cars. Mm. But then we know about these unsolicited tenders such as the one that Transurban put to the government and now it's building that tunnel heading, heading mm. west. Um, Crown did the same thing. It came to the New South Wales government and proposed an unsolicited tender to build this massive casino and residential development and the whole thing mm. on the public open space. So naturally the government gave it to James Packer <laughs> oh and God. it's all going ahead. Oh. And because of that and all the car parking he's providing, it's now becoming a oh. car area as opposed to public transport. So he's turned the whole thing on its head. Uh, but this, insane. But it gets worthless. But, I mean, nonetheless, he did it. He did it as he as he does in Melbourne for the good of the community to give them entertainment and for sure you know, that's right yeah I mean the number of people entertained to run out and jump straight into the yarra is impossible but um, he um, he's having trouble we, look this is awful I, I don't know whether to read it out because people will be in tears. Crown Resorts may have only sold one quarter of the super expensive apartment it's building above the new casino. Oh, golly. They're not oh, selling. They're not oh. selling. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> oh, James. Oh. <laughs> what will you do? <laughs> I mean, so I think I'll raise the radiothon because maybe we could yeah. have a separate you know, radiothon <clears throat> of some yeah. sort. To yeah, help we should help him out. Give yeah. James, Charity fundraiser. Yeah, mm. yeah. The residents have started around nine and a half million, by the way. You wonder why they're not selling, don't you? Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Public space. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the other ones, Lend, Lease and Co. have uh, uh, ones near of it. Um, they they sold in a few hours, but they cost it between a million and three million, whereas he's a nine and a half. So maybe there's a little clue there. Um, <laughs> What's I that? Um, the, there's some sort of fancy yeah. render image on that article that you were just looking at. Is that is that an image of the development? 
Oh, it probably hang on. One Karanga Road haven't got off to a flying you see site. The yeah, Sydney well, Bridge in the background. I don't think they've been built yet, so I imagine that must be yeah, an, an image. Yeah, um, looks very futuristic. Yeah, it's a great, but it's a great spot because it takes the view of the bridge from all the other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's got the crown emblem on the top. It's very good, isn't it? That's mm. very, yeah, yeah, overshadows the bridge. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's mm. very nice. Very nice indeed. Um, now, also um, before we'll go to Dave very shortly, but there's been a an item involving. Um, the, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the Herald Sun, I think again we might have read out last week or in the last couple of weeks that the Herald Sun's carrying on because they're letting all these terrible people stay in Australia and overriding Dutton's uh, decision to revoke their visas, etc. Mm. And, and what a terrible lot they are, you know, letting all these terrible, terrible people stay in. Like, you know, kids who were born here at, at, or came here at two years old mm. and, you know, were sent back to somewhere they'd never been. But that's, mm. that's Peter Dutton's way and it's, you know, it was keeping us safe. That's a good thing about it. And um, the, now the Herald Sun's found that former members of the tribunal are getting jobs in. Um, Getting jobs as um, as bureaucrats in the thing um, to assess um, applications, etc. And the Herald Sun thinks this is absolutely dreadful. You know, people who've gone on and they're now giving jobs jobs for the boys taking and good girls. Australian jobs jobs for the boys and girls situation. Yeah, they're complaining <laughs> and leaping on that bandwagon. Tony Abbott, he, he's blasted it for getting in the way of the government's efforts to keep people safe. Yes, he um, he says. It just seems wrong that these people can be rehired as and plum jobs. The judiciary at every level seems more and more eager to encroach on what was traditionally the role of the executive government, he said. The government's job is to keep us safe, to get rid of undesirable people who were in our midst and did bad things. What a pity. That should apply to him. <laughs> anyway, but don't have a right to stay here. That's, that's the awful part of it. He has got a right to stay here. And it is just awful when the AAT seems to hand over, bend over backwards to find in favour of people who are ripping us off. One of the reasons people ripping are so... Fr- off. Ripping us wow. off. Yeah, by wanting to stay here. Uh, one of the reasons people are so frustrated is because they elect governments to get on with things and whether it is the Senate, whether it is the courts or tribunals are always seeming to get in the way of what the government was elected to do. Well, the Senate is elected, by the way, Tony, um, <laughs> just just as a matter of fact. And and perhaps you should sit down and read the separation of powers thing about uh, our sorts of governments. But anyway, uh, there you are. Yeah. And uh, good news this week, the good news genuinely that John Setker and the other bloke got off um, last week on the case. I think we predicted last week they'd get off, didn't we? We said the way the evidence is going, they're going to get off. But they let the, the Crown withdrew the case altogether. And, uh, oh. and they, ever since, the usual suspects have been screaming and yelling <laughs> yeah. about lawlessness running riot. <laughs> so there we are. Wow. <laughs> let's um, let's get Dave Sweeney on the line and talk about something sensible. Okay, Dave Sweeney on the line. Meg, do you want to back announce though that song we just oh, played? Oh, Emma Donovan playing "Sunshine," which mm-hmm. is a great way to get um, energy. That's right. Is the sun currently shining in the Flinders Rages? We don't know. Um, we'll find out. That's where Dave Sweeney is. Dave is the anti-uranium, well, the, yes, the anti-uranium spokesperson for Australian Conservation Foundation. And we're going to talk today, we've talked to him before about it, the rehabilitation process with mines and resource companies who just walk away and essentially leave the public to pick up the purse or pick up the cost. Um, but Dave, you're currently in the Flinders Rangers on, a, on an issue that, that relates to that, aren't you? 
Yeah, I am, and I can say the sun's shining uh, very clear, oh, clear and strong up here. Well, yeah. well, you're lucky you're not in Melbourne today. Different to Melbourne, yeah. Uh, on the way here on the bike, I kept thinking that the, pers- the first person who invents windscreen wipers for, for, for glasses <laughs> for cyclists is going to make a fortune. <laughs> There you go. Forget Radiothon. That's a new fundraiser there, Kevin. That's it. That's it. <laughs> the, uh, you're right. Things, things are good up here, but, uh, beneath, but you know, um, it's, all, it's all sunny, but uh, there's a fair bit of shadow by the federal government. They've got to play on up here. They've got a, a move on in South Australia now to try and find a, a site for Australia's radioactive waste. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of listeners will remember the big fight that happened a few years ago up at Muckety in the mm. Northern Territory, uh, where an Aboriginal community was targeted to host Australia's waste. Um, and uh, there was a, a very significant campaign, and they were ultimately successful in, in opposing that. Well, rather than, than revisit and review the whole situation, what's happened is the federal government's just retweaked and loaded up the, the caravan and, and moved further down the track, and now they're in two parts of, of uh, South Australia and, and looking at two sites, one around a grain-growing region called Kimber at the top of the Eyre Peninsula and one around uh, Hawker in the Flinders Ranges. I'm, I'm up in Hawker in the Flinders at the moment talking with people about it. It's getting to the to the business end of the season um, with this. The Minister Canavan's the, the responsible minister. He wants to make a, a, an announcement, a decision by the end of the year and they're um, they're like uh, there's a really really strong federal push with carrot and stick. There's financial inducements and and spends and promises of jobs and infrastructure developments and a two million dollar community grant and all sorts of things. Mm. And at the same time, there's stick. There's lots threats of uh, of uh, you know um, that we'll push ahead with this anyway, and you should make a deal now while we're in a good frame of mind so that you can get something out of it. And it's uh, a really a difficult time for a lot of people in the community. They're, they're feeling a lot of pressure, and uh, it's a really important time. You know, like you say, I, I work with um, uh, Australian Conservation Foundation, so we're a national environment group, and that's the reason we're engaged in this because it's not. Uh, it's not a responsible or, or lasting way to approach, as a nation, you know, the, the, the management of an industrial waste. This stuff lasts 10,000 years, given what they're talking about putting up here. And, um, and communities are being basically pressured with a compressed time frame and limited information into saying yes. And, and the way the government's approaching this is the way a lot of mining companies approach negotiations. It's um, yes means yes and no means not yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I imagine like all these issues, there's there's views on both sides of it uh, in the, with the local communities up there. But what's the general feeling you're getting about the the attitude locally? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the, you know, the, when you come into regional Australia and you promise jobs and dollars, mm. um, ears open and understandably. Um, so there are people supportive of of the. Uh, project. There are people that are deeply and strongly opposed to the project. I suppose you'd say the sort of sense would be 25 um, not on your life, 25 this is percentages, 25% not on your life, never. 25% um, yeah, we'll have it and 50% is, is the area where it's hard to pick. Mm. Um, you know, because people, you know, a lot of people are conflict averse, and a lot of people um, are, are averse at 
at expressing an opinion or just sort of wish that difficult issues would go away mm. and that things would be back as they were beforehand. There's no, no doubt that it's caused a lot of tension and division, both in Kimber and in the Flinders region. There's also no doubt that there's really clear um, differences of, of emphasis. When I say 25, 25 and 50, when you look at Aboriginal viewpoint, the Aboriginal viewpoint is overwhelmingly overwhelmingly opposed. Mm. Um, the native title representative body here um, that covers the Flinders Ranges region is, is uh, and, and the lands of the uh, Anyamutna people is the Anyamutna Traditional Lands Association and ATLA has this absolutely unequivocal opposition to this proposal. Um, now, there's, uh, you know, small numbers of individual Aboriginal people who see economic benefits and, and are supportive, but the overwhelming community view is opposed. And if you look at some of the... If you look at also at people nearby, both in Kimber and in the Flinders, and nearby property owners in the Flinders, it's beef. In the in Kimber region, it's grain. Um, they are uh, really um, clearly and overwhelmingly opposed to the to the um, plan because they live there, they uh, generate an income from there. They've been there for a considerable period of time, and they want their kids to be there. And they don't, uh, they see this as completely as do we incompatible with with um, that sort of activity like growing food mm. and. Um, and so they don't want it, but then you get like businesses in a local town that think they might get a contract or that there'll be increased, um, uh, you know, uh, turnover in the shop, supportive. So there's a whole range of views, but where this really highlights, and I suppose this is in some ways apart from how significant this actual issue is, it's, it's part of a bigger picture of how decisions are made and how communities and country is viewed. You know, like often in this, I'm, I've been close to this one for a long time and I'm seeing again and again the decision-making process is, is driven by short-term politics, short-term expedience, the need to get a result or the need to have a quick fix. Um, and when we're talking like a lot of the issues that are addressed on city limits, a lot of the issues discussed and ventilated on CR, a lot of the things we're facing in, in my particular realm around nuclear stuff, mm. there's no quick fixes. They're complicated policy issues. They're, they're tough choices and they're value-based choices. And there needs to be like a you put the thing on the table, you have a frank discussion about pros and cons, about the way we're doing it now, about the full range of ways we could do it into the future. And you reflect on what worked and what didn't. And you try and build as uneasy and as complicated as that may be, some shared understanding, some sense of trust, some sense of consensus, or at least, if not agreement, that people have their, I can see why they did it this way. But mm -hmm. what happens again and again, and, uh, you know, it was referenced to me last night in a conversation in the pub where one of the locals was ropeable that a, a federal government person who was up here on a swing through tour last week said, look, mate, we can do anything. This will go ahead, whatever you think. Mm. That sort of attitude when it comes to accessing country, using resources, um, influencing and impacting on communities, is, um, it's completely unacceptable. Mm. Yeah, that's the kind of attitude that people are frustrated with and have been for years. I remember, I mean, I grew up in Tassie and it was very similar there with the forestry situation where, you know, um, pitting people against each other and, and having those kind of 
social narratives that were conflict kind of operated actually you know made it more possible for those with power to keep on exercising that power the way that they wanted to um how are you seeing that this is what is the actual plan about what's going to happen in these regions in terms of like transport of nuclear waste and how it's going to be you know if if this happens what they propose will happen to that waste yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, well, there's a lot. That, that's uh, they're they're really good questions. The, the short answer is that they haven't yet been fully confirmed by the federal government. There's yeah. a lot that's um, um, there's a lot that's undeclared, and we're asking mm. for detail. Mm. Um, um, so, basically, what they plan um, is uh, is to have uh, all the the Federal government or all the Commonwealth's radioactive waste centralised in this region, um, and um, that would be moved to either Kimber or or um, Hawker region. At the low level waste, that's waste that requires isolation for 300 years, would be put in drums and then have earth um, uh, put over top of it. So they don't use the word burial because that in, that um, offends Aboriginal sensibilities in the view of the department. So it will be entombed and there will, it will be encapsulated and entombed. So low-level waste, stacked, dirt put over the top like a mound and then that's it, over and out, no intention to retrieve it or recover it. The, the big issue stuff is, is the long-lived intermediate-level waste. That's stuff that needs to be isolated from people in the wider environment for 10,000 years. The low level is 300. The, the intermediate is 10,000. Um, they intend to just store that above ground while they work out what they'll do in the longer term with it. Now, the stuff now, that material now, is currently stored above ground at the site where it was made at the Lucas Heights Reactor Facility in southern Sydney. Now, 1,200 people work at that facility. It's got razor wire around it. It's got federal coppers and guard dogs. It's got secure tenure, and it's home to Australia's nuclear expertise. It has the highest rate of radiation response um, capacity and emergency and monitoring capacity in Australia, and that's where it already is. Now, it's there above ground, and they don't know what to do with it, and they want to move it from there to regional South Australia, to a facility that has 15 people, where there's a lot of contest, where there's far less security, far less monitoring, far less response capacity if anything goes wrong, mm. and keep it above ground there till they work out what's going on. So our argument is, why don't you keep it at Lucas Heights till you work out what's going on, move it once? It's like the old carpentry saying, you know, measure twice, cut once. Mm -hmm. Why double-handle this dangerous stuff? And we get no credible response, no clear rationale for it at all. It's just become like a mm. political, an inherited political mantra of, you know, we've got to do something without the proven need of why and without a discussion of what. Mm. And um, Dave, do you know why those two particular locations have been chosen? Yeah, they were chosen at the end of a process where after marketing fell over because of Aboriginal opposition and a federal court action and all sorts of stuff, the minister at the time was uh, Ian McFarlane and uh, he revised... We said this is the time you have a whole new approach. He didn't accept that, but he tinkered with the approach. And instead of nominating a site, they opened uh, a process up where any landholder, including like pastoral leases and leaseholders, could nominate a, a site 
and the, and the federal government would consider it. It was called a voluntary nomination process. They opened it up in 2016 um, and uh, they... Uh, they received, I think, about 25 or 30 nominations from different places right around Australia. They used a set of criteria like location, access to infrastructure, population density, rainfall, a range of things like that, narrowed it down to half a dozen, and then they've selected these two areas. Um, so that's how they come about. They say it's voluntary because, in one case, um, a, a farm owner and another, a pastoral lease owner, mm. put their hands up... That was without the consent or support of their neighbours mm, or their community. Yeah. Mm. Dave, it also, you mentioned that the community, some in the community say and the shopkeepers say it'll bring money and et cetera, but the way you describe it, it's not going to create too many jobs anyway, is it? No. For, for, for two years, for the two years of this current iteration of it, the jobs started at eight. They then went and sat for two years at 15, 15 full-time equivalent. And just recently, Minister Canavan has announced that on August 20, he wants a, a restricted catchment community ballot to measure community sentiment about the, the plan. Um, it will run from August 20 to late September and then he'll look at those results and other things and come up with which one he, he uh, intends to recommend mm. or intends to choose. Yeah. Now, in the process, just so for two years they've said 15 jobs, 15 jobs. One week after they announced that there'd be a ballot, they have uh, announced that the jobs will be 45. <laughs> so sort of like the knockout bid at the auction, you know. So you have two years of bidding and the two, uh, yes, they're all tied and in walks a new flashed dude in the suit and says three times the price. <laughs> so they've gone for the knockout bid. I'm up here, the local papers are full of, you know, um, uh, new plan means jobs. Mm. So, you know, that sort of, it's tired and boring and predictable, but, you know, mm. It's, mm. it's an old song sheet that still gets a pretty familiar run on the playlist. And um, it's it's quite extraordinary. They, they are literally changing the ground rules, reinventing what they've said, what they've promised, what they've done um, as we speak. It's, mm. it's It is really you know, shifting sands here. But what's not shifting is the fact that this is, like, strongly Aboriginal country. There is continuing, you know, massive, obvious and, and continuing cultural practice and presence. Mm. What's also not shifting at all here is um, the fact that, you know, you can you can put any sort of spin and you can use any sort of um, what's the buzzword of the week, but this stuff is a, is a hazard that exists for 10,000 years. Mm. Um, so that's lo a lot longer than any news cycle or, or electoral period. Yeah. At Makajee, they were also, one of the worries was that they were talking about taking nuclear waste from overseas and Australia becoming a, a storehouse for the world. Uh, is that still a threat? Well, it was a really complicating factor here because uh, at the same time as the federal government were poking around looking at these sites, uh, the former South Australian Labor government, the Wetherill government, I had a royal commission into opportunities to expand the nuclear industry in South Australia. It looked at nuclear power, uranium mining, uranium enrichment, found that they were all didn't stack up economically, et cetera, et cetera. But it did say that there was money in muck and it recommended um, opening uh, a high level waste global, international high level waste uh, disposal site somewhere in northern or western South Australia and uh, said that, that uh, such a site could take one third of the world's high level waste. Wow. Yeah, extraordinary. 
So that sent massive alarm bells through environmental groups, nuclear-free and anti-nuclear campaigners and obviously Aboriginal people. Mm. And there was a really spirited campaign for the last couple of years. It was successful last year, uh, just before the election when Jay Weatherall ruled out absolutely um, advancing this plan. And that was a position that was also uh, a position adopted by the now government, the South Australian Liberal Party. So it lacked social licence and it died. But it's a little bit sort of like, you know, the whack-a-mole game, like you knock it down here (laughs) and it pops up at the next hole. So it it remains a subtext here. Mm. It's not the main game. The main game, this is a national facility, but it remains a subtext. It's also interesting, when the legislation for this national facility went through, and it went through under the the really aggressive um, tutelage of uh, former Resource Minister for the Labor Party, Martin Ferguson, um, and there, there was scores of amendments that were put up to the legislation. It's very draconian, very heavy-handed, and it overrules all sorts of state legislation and Aboriginal and environmental protection. It's an ugly piece of law. So there were all these uh, suggestions and amendments that went up um, at the time, and they were all rejected, but one was accepted and adopted by the government, and that was that uh, to preclude this facility from using or receiving international waste. So I think we've been able to quarantine that in this specific case, but you know, the, there's a massive issue with international radioactive waste. It's growing, it's unresolved, it's a, it's a constraint on the industry in every nation where the industry operates, and there will be continuing pressure for Australia as a large nation with a small population. Mm. There'll be continuing pressure, carrot and stick, to um, you know, to host international waste, and it's a little bit like democracy. You know, putting the barrier up for that requires eternal vigilance. Mm. And um, what does the Australian Conservation Foundation recommend and suggest in terms of um, this issue of, of nuclear waste in Australia being produ- the waste that's being produced here? Yeah, how, how yeah. should we best handle it? Mm-hmm. What we've got? Yeah, yeah. Um, we we have an approach that says, look, let's let's try a, as as much as possible. We we decouple from the nuclear industry. So we, we turn the tap off, you know, to mm-hmm. not make more. Yeah. But with, with the inventory, with, with what we've got now, um, our approach is that 95% of what they want to put in this uh, future national facility, 95% of it is at two existing federal sites right now. So the low-level waste, the majority is on Defence Department land in Woomera in mm-hmm. South Australia, not mm-hmm. too far from here. And the the long-lived intermediate-level waste, the the more significant, serious, the harder to manage and more complex one, that is uh, overwhelmingly at um, at uh, the Lucas Heights facility in Sydney. So ACF's view and a pretty broad coalition of civil society um, groups' view is that um, that should stay there. Mm-hmm. That should stay there. There should be... Um, enhanced uh, containerisation, better monitoring, like really step up the awareness of it, put it front of mind rather than back a shed. Mm. But it should stay where it is um, until we have what we've never had, which is an actual uh, options review of the full range of options. What, what all we've ever had in this in, in this country in relation to this issue is complete indifference, mm. then coupled with, oh, let's co-locate. Um, the higher-level stuff and the lower-level stuff together somewhere remotely. Mm. Now, that's one way, but 
but it's not the only way. And mm. in our view, it's clearly not the best way. But we want to bring all the people, the people who make the waste, the people who manage the waste, stakeholders like unions, Aboriginal groups, environmental groups, independent academics, international experts, government, and so bring to the table and then have a fair income discussion. This stuff lasts 10,000 years. Every person at this table will not be here in that time, mm. um, but we have a responsibility to think long, not, not tomorrow's solution to make the minister happy, to think long in mm. the national interest, in the interest of future generations. So what are our options? and then have a process to work through them to adopt the least worst. Mm. So our approach is extended, um, extended interim storage above ground at existing federal facilities, coupled with a really robust uh, public review of, uh, of future options. Mm. Um, and just for some background, Dave, what are the kind of environmental consequences of, of storing the stuff that ACF has identified? Well, there's a... I suppose the, the, the big range is how do you future-proof 10,000 years? Mm. Um, you know, like how, how, do you actually, how do you actually assure that and have a level of confidence and assurance in it? Maybe that's um, why the government aren't doing anything about climate change because that solves the problem about what to well, do. <laughs> it, it, in, in, a, in some ways, it's, it, it's, it does, it's, it, it's the same sort of thinking. Mm. It's the thinking of... Like one one government official told another person, story recounted in the pub um, <laughs> last night, he, he was told this guy has lived in this area all his life. He's north of 60. Yep. And he was told, what are you worried about? What are mm. you worried about? You won't be here, mate. Oh, that's what an a, attitude. Now yeah. that, that uh, it just speaks volumes. Enough yeah. said, you know, mm. like you... That, that sort of thinking. So you ask one of the problems, the problems say if it's spilled and exposed, it's a carcinogenic material, you know, it can get into food train, it can concentrate in bush tucker and food and be uptaked into people's diet. Um, there's, there's direct exposure impacts, there's risks and threats to, to workers at the facility um, in transport, as you earlier mentioned, to communities en route. Um, but I suppose the bigger picture is that this is... Um, like it's it's the longevity that this is a threat for, uh, mm. the um, which is the uh, you know the, the concern for us. We're very careful in this region and in this debate to not use you know Simpsons imagery of three-eyed fish and talk about you'll all get sick and you'll glow in the dark and all that sort of stuff. Mm. The sort of more, if you like, the more extreme stuff that relates to like. Um, a really extreme high-dose radiation exposure. Mm. This is unlikely to be that, but it is a, it's a significant threat. The long-lived, in immediate-level waste is, is, a, is a serious radiological threat and problem. Mm. The lower-lived waste is not nothing, but it's a lesser-order one. Mm. Um, but we're, we're really careful not to push buttons because we don't want to make people fearful, mm. we want to get people engaged in a debate uh, and a discussion around what's best or what's least worse and, you know, a, a proper sort of evidence-informed thing about making decisions. So, um, you know, we're really cautious about uh, adding fuel to fire, adding concern to people who are already worried, mm. and we're really also con uh, concerned and cautious about how we engage with people, how we conduct ourselves, because, you know, um, 
it's a different, like a small country town mm. or a rural region, you don't have a lot of anonymity, you know. You run into your the person with the opposing view mm. in the freezer section of the supermarket. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't, you don't hide. Mm. Um, the cold it's not shoulder. like the city. Mm. <laughs> and, um. and so we're try, we're very careful to, if you like, to try and and understand that people can be for the facility because they see it as a job or a benefit for their community. But then when you tease out what they think about this or are there other options, they go, "Yeah, I'd far prefer tourism. Mm. I'd far prefer yeah. kids to be doing a metal trade. It'd be great if we had a renewable. Mm, you know, let's yeah. have a solar farm." And so. You know, they they might on day one be ticking a box saying yes, there's jobs, so I'm for it. Mm. But on day four, when they see that there are options and alternatives, and also the risks of this one, yeah. you know, that's where that's the sort of role that we're trying to play up here, mm. and and that's what we're doing up here. But sort of in another sense, as a national organisation, more importantly, what we're trying to do in Canberra is say both you major parties have failed mm. to take this responsibly, like you do in so many things failed to take issues responsibly, failed to govern in the national interest rather than in the short-term sectional interest, and that needs to change. Mm. Yeah, Dave, we also we did say we'd talk about the way that companies and the, all these companies are involved um, just walk away from their minds. They put a deposit down which rarely covers anything near the real cost of rehabilitation, so the community's left with it. I mean, that's, that's an ongoing problem, is it not? Massive, massive problem. You know, we've got 50,000 legacy mines in Australia, 50,000 holes in the ground that a company's walked away from without fixing. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a massive problem. Rehabilitation is the forgotten part. Like mining industries, like they're great at finding, great at extracting. I don't mean great as in I love what they do, but really <laughs> efficient and effective at identifying and extracting mm. and exporting ore. Um, but they fall down, you know, it's like the party. That no one cleans up afterwards in the mining sector. <laughs> Everybody can relate to that. Yeah, yes, yeah. Party well, the in mining, the mining sector, like, no idea what he's sector, talking about. Yeah, no idea what he's talking about. The mining sector too often looks at Australia uh, as Airbnb, you know. We go, we drill, we rip, we ship, we leave. And that's, um, that practice happens here. Now, there's been a lot of effort put in by uh, groups and people into a current Senate inquiry into the adequacy of, of Commonwealth rehabilitation legislation. Um, that reports in late August and there's, you know, um, I'm not holding my breath, but I know other people are really hopeful that um, there will be some some awareness of that, that uh, you know, rehabilitation needs to be factored in from the start and needs to be assessed, and it's actually like it's actually a, a, a flag item that means a project. If it can't demonstrate mm. that it can credibly finance and facilitate its cleanup, then it doesn't get started. Mm. Um, and you know that that's also we see really dodgy practices um, here and and overseas. You know, like which are all based around the same thing of private of privatising profit. And putting cost into the public realm, so mm. your 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 benefit, the the income, is yours and your shareholders, and you grab it to you, and the cost, be it pollution, degraded water, uh, resource depletion, um, whatever, contamination, all those things are externalities. 
which are out there and the environment pays for it, the local villages pay for it, the state or federal government pays for it, the taxpayer pays for it, meanwhile you've moved on. Mm. The dreadful Wonthaggy fire a couple of years ago, and that related to the fact that they'd walked away from that mine, hadn't they, and, and not really done anything to prevent something like the fire occurring? Yeah, it was in it was inadequate um, rehabilitation and inadequate monitoring of, of like a of a post mined area. Yeah. So those sort of things and um, you know, that that sort of a, approach uh, is is mirrored. Um, and you know, like that that happens in Victoria, which has, you know, high standards and independent media and, you know, watchdogs like CR and environment groups. So you can imagine what happens Mm. The further away you get mm. from that, and mm. you imagine what happens in areas of, of low governance and um, and you know like um, developing nations, uh, mm. corners are just routinely cut. You know, the disposal of mine waste into water systems, mm. massive problem. Mm. I know that's an issue that, that um, you know you're switched into, Kevin. But well, we've talked about yeah. I mean, it's mostly in Papua New Guinea and. Um, and West Papua, etc. And in fact, the Indonesian government has recently um, suggested that the Freeport mine ought to stop dumping its um, rubbish into the local river system, which is interesting. And they're complaining, saying, look, they can't financially, they simply can't do it. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, there's another, that's that's the bottom line of this. The, you know, they talk about triple bottom line, but in the mining industry, the triple bottom line is pounds, dollars and euros. Mm-hmm. And, and it's extraordinary. And the volumes are extraordinary. Like, there's more, there's more waste from mining operations on our planet that goes into rivers and lakes and the sea directly um, each year than, uh, you know, as the Americans call it, trash that goes into landfill in the USA. Mm, wow. So, like, if you think of 250 million people chewing through burgers and all the crap that is piling up and then goes to landfill in the United States, there is more than that. There's 220 million tonnes of mine waste, which includes heavy metals and a whole cocktail of contaminants directly and deliberately going into our planet's waterways. Mm. And it's because it's cheap. And it's cheap for the operator, but it's not cheap for the planet. Mm. Mm. Not so good for the fish. And I'm guessing, I'm assuming that this disproportionately disadvantages people who are Indigenous and traditional owners. As Absolutely. you mentioned, yeah. Absolutely. You know, like closest to the site, mm. dependent on the water, um, mm. no, not, not a lot of access to, you know, treatment facilities, dependent on the food. Mm. Uh, so income goes, health goes, country goes. Mm. Um, and then, mm. you know, after 10 years, the mining company goes. <laughs> yeah, and they've got a tidy profit. Yeah, they've mm. got a tidy profit. Shareholders are happy. The group executives have got a bonus. KPIs have been met. And um, and they use you know language of like uh, 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 you know residues mm. and you know deep sea tailings deposition, mm. deep you know submarine Euphemisms. tailings submarine tailings placement. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Power of the English language. Well, Dave, we haven't solved any of that, but we can work toward it. Perhaps just one last comment though, because I think it's. Um, in terms of uranium, um, it, it is incredibly hypocritical and, and arrogant for the powers that, um, the good powers that have nuclear weapons, so they're good nuclear weapons, to tell certain countries they don't like they simply can't have them, isn't it? I mean, we don't support them at all, but 
to um, to carry on about someone getting it because you just don't like them is uh, is a touch arrogant when you've got about a million of them yourself. Uh, everything about nuclear weapons is arrogant. <laughs> to say that our national security depends on the threat of eliminating life on Earth <laughs> is the height of arrogance. Um, and, you know, there's that saying that there are no safe hands for nuclear arms. It's not like, oh, thank mm. God, they're American ones, not the creepy <laughs> Korean ones. You know? <laughs> well, to be to be fair, when this, you know, the Stalinist era, a lot of um, communists would come back to Australia and say the Russian ones were quite safe, but they <laughs> right. but they totally opposed the American ones. Well, there you go. That, that's right. Because and also, nuclear power is the people's power, electrifying the countryside, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Look, there's some things that that um, transcend, um, you know. Uh, party politics or any ideological worldview, and one of them is the, the continuation of a habitable planet. And uh, nuclear weapons <laughs> are inconsistent, <laughs> inconsistent with that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really tragic that the biggest nuclear power, um, being the United States, mm-hmm. um, is, is like, well, well, it's not like, oh, would it be safe, it'd be OK if it had been Clinton, Sanders or continuing Obama. It's not. But it is particularly concerning mm-hmm. when it's as erratic as as ill-tempered, mannered and visioned as Trump. It's extraordinary that that power... Like, that, that the, the US walks away from the Iran nuclear agreement. With all the problems and flaws of that, it was a constrained agreement that had been constructed and was serving a, you know, a purpose. And to, to walk away from that and then talk about how big your button is is just extraordinarily dangerous and unacceptable behaviour. So, you know, that's, that's one thing we've spoken before about ICANN and the international campaign to abolish mm. nuclear weapons and, and their push for uh, a treaty to prohibit these weapons. That's that's a test for a country like Australia. We say all the right things, yeah. but when push comes to shove, we just go quiet on the things that matter. And when you stop making a noise on the things that matter, then your, your position doesn't matter. Um, Australia needs to step up now. Um, it's unlikely that it will under the coalition government. Um, but, uh, you know, I think really front and centre, there's pressure on the Australian Labor Party to say, do you, you know, where are your values? Do you support a nuclear weapons-free world or not? Mm. I wouldn't put much faith in that either, by the way. But anyway, we'll hope for the best day. We've got to go now. But look, thanks for your time this morning. You've been terrific, giving us so much of your time. And um, we'll we'll talk to you again, obviously, because we we talk to you periodically on this program. Well, I hope so. And Meg and Eugenia and Kevin, it's really appreciated the opportunity to speak and and really appreciated the opportunity to tell, you know, here and now from this place, which Mm. is a long way from Melbourne, Mm. you know, the pressure that people are under right now because, like, if push comes to shove, we might be putting the call out for more urgent action, mm. and it's just great to know the CR crew and the Melbourne crew are there. Okay, mm. thanks, Dave. Thank thanks for your time. Dave. Thanks. Right, terrific there. And we today, I suppose, city limits can go as far as the um, Rangers and Club Adelaide. Mm, yeah, well, online well, we're all over the world. Plinders. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. some of us might just go up there and. And next week, Meg, you got the show lined up. I mean, what's what's going on? Um, Eugenia and I have got a special show yeah. on the mm-hmm. Campbell Arcade. Yeah, so we're going to be talking to... Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
Christine I'm going to be. I'll be totally topic. useless next week. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to have a break if you want, but we're not trying to get rid of you. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> we'll discuss that after the show. We'll be surprised right. for everyone next week. Will Kevin be there or not? No, no. If I'm up and a chance to be off for a week, I'll be no surprise next week. I won't be here. You're all right. Well, the only thing concerning Eugenia and I is that we'll have to read the Herald Sun. <laughs> Update. Keep people updated about what's going on in there. Yeah, well, that's, there you are. <laughs> We've got to go. It's 10 o'clock. Yep.